right. So I'm here with Ben Westoff. He's author of Fentanyl, Inc. And why don't you just tell me a little bit about yourself, more of your background? Thanks for having me, Adriana. My book, Fentanyl, Inc., it's the subtitle is How Rogue Chemists Are Creating the Deadliest Wave of the Opioid Epidemic. And I'm an investigative journalist and first became interested in this subject in 2010 when I had a friend who died from fentanyl. And he actually had the prescription patches, which he procured illegally and was drinking and ended up kind of suffocating in his sleep. Back then, nobody even knew what fentanyl was and started hearing more and more about the opioid epidemic. And so now, you know, we had prescription pills like OxyContin. That was the first wave of the opioid epidemic. Then people, when their prescriptions ran out, turned to street heroin which was the second wave of the opioid epidemic. And now fentanyl is the third, and it's the most deadly. Um, It's hard to find pure heroin at all these days in a lot of places. So much of it is cut with fentanyl, and it's killing now more Americans than any other drug in history. So you talked about these three waves, and I I think a lot of people, when they're reading about opioids, they don't realize that heroin is part of it. They kind of see it as a separate drug, but that doesn't seem to be the case, correct? Yeah, you can think of fentanyl as synthetic heroin. And so heroin is an opioid or an opiate. It's basically the same thing. Fentanyl is the synthetic version. And so that means that whereas heroin comes from the opium poppy, it has to be grown in a field, it takes time, it takes energy, it's susceptible to law enforcement, these big fields. But fentanyl can be made clandestinely in a small lab very cheaply, and the profit margins are astronomical. It's, uh, fentanyl is 50 times more potent than heroin. And so for the Mexican cartels who are moving most of it, it is just an incredibly profitable drug. And so they're moving away from heroin as fast as they can in favor of fentanyl. So you just mentioned the Mexican cartels, but then also in your book, you talk about how these Chinese labs are manufacturing it. So can you go into a little bit more detail of how it's making its way into the U.S. and what's happening before it gets to the U.S. as well? Yeah, we do think of the Mexican cartels as supplying almost all the drugs that Americans have. And that's true of heroin, meth, cocaine, uh, and even marijuana to a large extent. But these new drugs, particularly fentanyl, They're made in a lab, and they're all made in China. And so what China does is these are are chemists. These are, in some cases, legitimate chemists and companies who make these drugs. And sometimes they're even made legally by Chinese law. There's these different types of fentanyl, different types of new drugs. And then they are shipped to the Mexican cartels who distribute them in the U.S. Sometimes fentanyl and other drugs made in China are actually shipped through the U.S. mail directly to consumers. And so you have the U.S. Postal Service, FedEx, UPS, all unwittingly serving as drug couriers to Americans. So you're talking about the Postal Service, um, you know, how it's kind of being used as couriers here. Are they, should they be held responsible for this? You know, does the blame go to China, like these labs? You know, where does the primary responsibility lie for getting to the root of this issue. Right. Well, there is a lot of blame to be spread around. Um, I talk about in Fentanyl, Inc., the case of an 18-year-old boy from North Dakota named Bailey Henke. 
And he overdosed and died from fentanyl that he got from, a, you know, just the local neighborhood high school drug dealer. And that guy got it off the dark web. And so the dark web, you probably know, is the sort of disguised Internet protocol that has all these drug marketplaces. And the man who was selling via the dark web uh, was based in Portland, Oregon. And then he had a connection and another connection. And and finally, it could be sourced back to China. And so the DEA and other departments of U.S. law enforcement um, prosecuted people on every step of this drug ladder, except who they couldn't prosecute were the Chinese chemists who actually made the drug. And that's because China doesn't, you know, extradite criminals accused of U.S. crimes. And so when we're talking about who's to blame for the fentanyl crisis, we've got to start at home. You know, why is the demand so high? But in terms of China, and that's what I really focused on in my book in large part, China is not only doing a poor job stopping fentanyl from getting exported to the U.S., they're even encouraging it in a lot of ways through the tax code and all these these complicated ways that add up to a really kind of troubling situation. Now, you mentioned Bailey Hankey, and then you also mentioned that you lost a friend from fentanyl. Based on your experience, who, you know, who are these people using fentanyl? Is there a common theme here? Um, you, uh, like, you know, what set, and what is it that sets them apart as well? What's scary about fentanyl is that it's a drug most people don't want. So when it comes to drugs that are killing people like heroin and cocaine, the users tend to want this. But nowadays, you know, young people who are buying drugs off the Internet, you know, street-level users, um, people of all ages and demographics are susceptible to fentanyl because they think they're getting other drugs. And the way that the singer Prince died was that he thought he was taking a legitimate pharmaceutical pill, an opioid, for pain, but it was actually cut with fentanyl. That's the same with Tom Petty and the rapper Mac Miller. And so increasingly, we're finding fentanyl being cut into these black market, you know, be it Oxycontin, uh, Valium, or excuse me, Vicodin, Percocet. And so these pills look exactly like the real thing, but they have fentanyl in it. And so that's um, another troubling development. So this might be a very oversimplified question here, but why are these drug manufacturers, the illicit ones, why are they lacing these things with fentanyl if if it's going to kill the people who are essentially their customers? Yeah, that's the number one question people ask me. And I talk to a lot of users and dealers about this. And what they say is that when you have people who have, have used heroin before, for example, they... Um, they don't even get high anymore eventually. They just get rid of their withdrawal symptoms by taking heroin. But the thing is with fentanyl, it's so powerful that now for the first time in a long time, they can get high again. And so to many addicted users, when they hear about someone else who overdosed and died, they don't think we should stay away from that batch. That's bad news. They think that is what I need. I need that really strong, powerful batch. And it's a, it's a very kind of, you know, tragic form of marketing in a way. So in your conversations with people affected by fentanyl, I know that this is similar to a question I already asked, but 
not just demographics, but overall, what is a common theme that you've noticed about their individual stories um, as they struggle with using fentanyl? I think the most common theme is that people didn't know about fentanyl before this happened. And recently in Seattle, the Seattle area, a bunch of uh, young people, I believe they're in high school, had this mass overdoses at, at the school. And the parents weren't weren't aware of it originally. You know, the the first responders, the the medical people involved with the case didn't know what these kids had taken, and that's the number one thing that we're fighting when it comes to fentanyl right now. People don't know enough about it. People don't realize it's cut into all these other drugs, and first responders often aren't armed with what they need to fight these overdoses. And there's this, this miracle overdose reversal drug you've probably heard of called Narcan. And when people are, it's, it's often a nasal spray. And when someone overdoses on any opioid, including fentanyl, if they get Narcan, they can often be revived and brought back to life. The problem is that the people who need it don't often have it. And this can be firefighters, even librarians encounter huge number of overdoses um, in, in public libraries nowadays. So need, need better access. So what do you think could be done? I know you said it starts at home, uh, but what do you think are some policy things that could be done to try to fix this situation, this crisis, essentially, with fentanyl? Well, I went really deep and tried to learn everything I could about this problem, and that brought me to China. Um, I actually went undercover into a pair of Chinese drug operations, including I went into a fentanyl lab outside Shanghai, and I was pretending to be a drug dealer. It was all kind of very harrowing, and um, my uh, wife and family were concerned for my well-being, but... In this process, um, I got to see these labs. You, you, could, you have to read more. I get into it in harrowing detail in the book. But in the process, I learned that um, these these are normal companies. You know, I was expecting, like I said, an underground sort of drug lair with guys holding AK-47s sort of guarding the doors. But it wasn't like that. The, the lab I visited looked kind of like a suburban office park. And what I learned was that these companies – making fentanyl and other dangerous drugs, are subsidized by the government. And so when, when they, they work in these suburban office parks, for example, the, the building, you know, the cost for research and development, they have these development zones, um, they get export tax breaks. And so I think the first thing that really needs to be done is China has to curtail uh, these policies. And... Ultimately, uh, Pre- President Trump has made this a big issue, too, in the, in the trade war. And so he's saying that if China doesn't stop the exports of fentanyl, that he's going to raise tariffs on other goods associated with trade. And so, you know, it's, it's really important that China take strong action in this area. But as I said, we can only really control what's happening at home. And we need to, to start figuring out why are people taking fentanyl? How is it getting into the drug supply? Um, how can people better be prepared to, to deal with fentanyl when it's discovered? And that's something I put a lot of, a lot of time and thought into. And um, I, I don't know how familiar you, familiar you are with 
the number of different people who have been using fentanyl. But I think a common thing that's come up in my research with opioids is that people see this often as a white problem. Do you find that it's, you know, touching all races, all ethnicities across the U.S. and even outside the U.S.? Yeah, you did hear about the OxyContin pill. They sometimes called it hillbilly heroin. People would snort them up. And um, you heard about that as kind of a rural white problem, especially in the Midwest or maybe places like West Virginia. But the, the problem, unfortunately, has spread all over the map and all to all races and socioeconomic groups. Um, I, I live in St. Louis, and there's a very large African-American population there and a large heroin-using population that is now – they can't find heroin on the street anymore. It's all either fentanyl or cut with fentanyl. And so seeing mass casualties, the, the overdose rates are rising among black users, places like Chicago, other parts of the Rust Belt as well. And it's also uh, middle-aged women. The death rates are rising, young young people as well. And as, as you might know, the, the U.S. mortality rate is actually following, falling now. Life expectancy is dropping for America as a whole, something that hadn't happened in decades and decades. And fentanyl is a big part of the reason why. So let's take a step back here. We talked about a lot of people using within the U.S. Now, when you were in China, did you know, is fentanyl a big issue there as well in terms of addiction? Or is it just kind of being taken out of China to other places? I got to learn a lot of interesting things about drug culture in China. And one thing that really shocked me, first of all, was that almost nobody uses marijuana, almost nobody uses cocaine. Um, the drugs of abuse in China tend to be things like meth and heroin and, and even ketamine is very popular. But fentanyl is not a problem in China. China does not have a, a fentanyl crisis, nearly the scope that the U.S. does or, or, China, or uh, Canada also has a really big problem. And so to a lot of people... This is why China hasn't really cracked down on its fentanyl industry, because its own people aren't dying from it. And so um, the way the Chinese government works is fentanyl is illegal there, but it's not so much just the laws on the books. It's what resources the government dedicates to cracking down on different problems. And so when it comes to meth, which is a huge problem among Chinese citizens, the government has really focused on trying to stamp it out you know, um, uh, take drug dealers down, disrupt operations. But when it comes to fentanyl being made there, that's just not the case. So, you know, I know you talk a lot about this in your book, but for people who aren't familiar with it, what was it that took you to China to begin with? And what made you want to go to this particular place in China? I heard so much that fentanyl came from China, and I wanted to know, how are people ordering this? And um, so I just Googled buy fentanyl in China, and I was shocked when um, just dozens and dozens of different companies' uh, web addresses came up, and you could just directly email the salespeople. And so I, um, I was in contact with a bunch of them. I made a fake email address, and I said, you know— Tell me more about your company. And I sometimes I would get up at four in the morning to, to do Skype conversations with salespeople in uh, places like uh, Guangdong and Shanghai and Wuhan. And we talked about drugs, but I also talked about like 
what's life like as someone who was selling these these awful chemicals? And I got to really know the sort of human side of the, the people working for these companies as well. Now, did you ever feel like your life was in danger while you were in, uh, infiltrating these labs? It was definitely a scary experience. One thing that I took a little bit of comfort in is that these people these running these labs really are business people. And so they, do, they don't, you know, gun control is very strong in China. Even the criminals don't tend to have guns. And so I, I was, however, really worried about the Chinese government because I wasn't there on a tourist visa. Excuse me, I was there on a tourist visa. I wasn't there on a journalist visa because I knew if I got a journalist visa, they wouldn't let me do the things I wanted to do. And so, but, but I've since talked with the U.S. Department, the, the State Department, and they are warning me, like, don't go back to China. You know, what you did is grounds enough to be put in jail. And so I am taking their advice. So how did they find out? It was once the book came out that they found out about all the undercover work you well, did? Well, I don't even know if they do know. That's the thing. Um, they might have never have heard of me. You know, I might be top of their most wanted list. I just, <laughs> there's no way to know. And so I can't take my chances. And I know that um, there were some people that you had formed, like, uh, I guess, a cordial relationship with uh, while you were there. Have you heard from any of them since then? I haven't heard with the from the salespeople, um, but I have learned a lot of information about this company that I wrote about in great detail. The company is called Yuan Chung. They're based in Wuhan. Huge portion of the book, my book Fentanyl Inc., is dedicated to how did this company come to be? They they came to sell more fentanyl ingredients than any company in the world. I sort of did this deep dive about the CEO, how he amassed his fortune, how they came to, to start selling these chemicals. And I ended up in China going to their sales floor with like hundreds of salespeople, young people just out of college, um, behind laptops, you know, using social media to sell this stuff. And I, um, I ran, did all, you know, ran the numbers on this company. They're making a ton of money. But since then, since the book came out, there has actually been a big fire at their factory. And it came out the exact the, the fire happened the exact same time when my first excerpt for this book came out. It was in the Atlantic magazine, and it was all about this company. And so right when that happened, there was a huge fire at the factory, and the police said in the, the article that arson had not been ruled out. So I am curious to know what's sort of going on behind the, behind the scenes there. And what was some of the things that you saw while you were infiltrating th- this Chinese lab? You know, I know you said that the, the place looks very normal for a place that's making illegal drugs, but what were some of the other things that you uh, witnessed? Yeah, well, I go into into detail in my book, but this this place that was selling the fentanyl precursors was um, it, it, it in a way it wasn't all that different than the Yahoo offices here. Um, they had their own chef. They had this big canteen. They had like um, it was. It, they tried to promote team building. It was uh, very kind of corporate in its own way. They they worked sort of long hours. They had to work Saturdays, and and it was actually um, in a ho- in an old hotel. And so all the employees lived in the hotel as well. And that was actually a, a sales point um, to try to get people to work there because 
room and board were provided. So I'm not saying you should um, give up your jobs here and, and move there, but there were similarities. <laughs> what, what do you think was the most surprising thing about your experience there in China that you weren't expecting? Well, I loved going to China. I love being there, and it makes me sad to think I can't go back. But at, um, at heart, I think this story is really about global capitalism. And as much as we might want to say, you know, it's the evil uh, Chinese leaders who are inflicting this horrible poison on Americans, really, it's the same things that drive global capitalism. You know, the the Internet age, these drugs are sold on the Internet, the, the speed of shipping has been increased, um, all like the giant China and the U.S. normalized trade relations in the year 2000 and that, um, you know, cutting down barriers to trade, all of these things are fueling the drug crisis. And people who don't even realize they're involved with it, like the UPS workers, for example, the people driving these these barges going across the ocean that are filled with fentanyl and they don't even realize it. And so it's, it's such a complicated problem that um, at the end of the day, it can all be traced back, like everything else, to profit motive. So I'm just I'm just curious because it seems like it's only in recent years that we've been hearing more and more about fentanyl that it's been brought under the limelight. But, you know, you said that you lost your friend. It was 2010, I believe. You know, so that's almost a decade ago. And But it again, it, it, it seems like it took some time for it to be brought to the forefront. I'm curious. Do you do you have a theory as to why that is? Well, so many people underestimated fentanyl. Not only the, the, the people on the ground, but the scientists who made it themselves. I talked to, uh, to scientists who were involved with these different types of fentanyl called analogs. They were manipulating the chemical structure of fentanyl to find something that worked well as a pain reliever, and they hoped to patent it. And these scientists weren't worried about fentanyl and these analogs jumping to, into the realm of abuse because they thought it's just too powerful. You know, it kills people too easily. The, the therapeutic index is too small, meaning the amount that it takes to relieve pain compared to the amount that kills you is, is too small. And in the DEA also agreed with them. Um, as recently as 2015, the DEA's annual report on drugs in the U.S. said talked about fentanyl, and it said, this is a, a dangerous potential drug, but it's not something we really need to worry about because it's too strong. People don't like it. And so, you know, basically don't worry about it. And they were so wrong about that, that it was only one year later in 2016 that fentanyl surpassed heroin and began killing more Americans than any other drug annually. So what do you think the future holds for trying to fight the the spread of fentanyl and this crisis in general? Well, I am optimistic against, against all odds. Um, I've started going around the country and speaking to opioid summits, to, to universities, to, to groups about um, what we can do to, to slow this crisis. And I think that there, there is starting to be political will to do the things we need to do. Now, I mentioned Narcan giving people access to it. There's, there's also something called fentanyl testing strips. 
and these are really cheap, um, like uh, paper strips. Basically, they're kind of like a pregnancy test. But if you dip it in your solution of drugs, it can tell you instantly if fentanyl is there or not there. And so, because fentanyl is a drug people tend not to want, if people find it, they're much less likely either not to use it or to go slow. And as a result, overdose deaths uh, are, are are fewer. There are more radical solutions that have been very successful in places like Europe and Canada, and these are called supervised injection facilities. And these are places where people can legally use drugs. There are clean needles, doctors and nurses on staff. There is a support system so that when people are are addicted users can come there and and use drugs safely. Fentanyl and, and heroin, uh, it's, most, it's often not the drugs itself that are kill people, that kill people. It's having too much. It's contaminated needles. It's the lifestyle associated with drug use, having to steal, you know, prostitution, things like that, to get the money to pay for drugs. And if you can eliminate these factors, the, it's much more likely that people will survive. Now, the problem is that these supervised injection facilities are illegal in the U.S., and there have been federal crackdowns. There's some hope in Philadelphia right now where a court just ruled in favor of one. But I think slowly people are realizing that this, this drug epidemic, the opioid crisis, the fentanyl crisis, is so devastating that we need radical solutions. We need to try things we haven't tried before. So why is it that people seem to be against this idea of helping people with drug addiction? You know, I think a common American notion is that these should all be criminalized. But I think we learn from the war on drugs that this is not a feasible solution. But there still seems to be the stigma. So I'm curious for your take on that. When it comes to these supervised injection facilities, there's a lot of nimbyism, you know, not in my backyard and this idea that, in my neighborhood, you're going to put a site where drug users congregate. And I can understand that sentiment. At the same time, studies have shown that um, th- when these, these addicted users aren't congregating in public parks, in public areas, when they can be brought into an area where they're, they're cared for and there's a community, that it benefits the community at large. And there are even police chiefs in Europe where they have these centers that say, this is one of our most effective ways to fight crime. And so I think if people can look beyond sort of this nimbyism sort of mentality, they would find that there's huge benefits to the society at large. And do you have any specific stories that have kind of stood out to you in your research and your work over the last few years in terms of people with firsthand accounts of fentanyl use? I talk in the book with a pregnant uh, fentanyl-addicted user, and I call her Bree in the book. And she is from just across the river from St. Louis, where I live. And she has been addicted to, to a number of drugs over the years, but fentanyl has just been the worst. And she and the mother of uh, the child that she was pregnant with when I was interviewing her, they, uh, I interviewed them both, they had this huge problem with fentanyl, and it was tough to kick. But they found this this center in St. Louis. It's called the Wish Center. And it's founded by this this great doctor, addiction specialist, prenatalist, prenatal specialist named Dr. Jay Shikin. And she runs this center with an idea towards 
helping people with this opioid use disorder by giving them uh, medicine, uh, low-level opioids like Suboxone and Methadone to help them taper off these bad drugs like heroin and fentanyl, and at the same time providing counseling, more traditional therapy. And so she's finding a lot of success, as are other doctors who are trying this in other centers. It's not just that the opioids get their chemical hooks into your brain and there's no escaping. It's problems in people's lives. You know, people are living in poverty when they have childcare problems, when they have abuse and trauma in their past. These are things that need to be addressed. And if they are, the success rate for getting off opioids is a lot higher. So can you break down what it's actually like to get off of fentanyl as a user, you know, when you're in withdrawal stages? Well, the withdrawal is famously bad, and people have described it as a really bad flu or even just, you know, vomiting, like can't sleep, just constant pain. Um, And to get off fentanyl, there are cases where people have got off clean and they, they don't use any drugs anymore at all. And that's great. There are other people who have taken something like Suboxone, and it's a low-level opioid, and they stay on it indefinitely. So they get their shots of buprenorphine, which is the same drug. And, you know, it's controversial to some people because they say, well, aren't you just substituting one opioid for another opioid? And the, the doctor's response is that, yeah. You are, but it helps people lead safe lives. You know, these aren't these low-level opioids. They're not getting people high. They're um, they don't have to steal or you know they they get the these through health insurance plans cover a lot of these drugs. And even if you're you're still taking these medicine, it's like treating a disease. You know, and if we think of it that way, we wouldn't deny someone their medicine for a, a traditional disease, right? And um, even though it's it's sub, it's in Europe they call it substitution therapy and even though you're substituting one drug for another for a lot of people it's a way to find stability the economics of fentanyl are such that it's more profitable than any drug seen yet and as i mentioned since fentanyl is 50 times more powerful than heroin that means for every uh, 50 kilos of heroin, the equivalent is just one kilo of fentanyl. And so bringing it across the border, say smuggled in cars, is so much easier. But not only that, but the cost of making fentanyl is so much cheaper. And so whereas uh, a kilo of you know cocaine might be $30,000 or a kilo of heroin might be something along that magnitude, a kilo of fentanyl might only be $3,000. So it's 10 times cheaper and 50 times stronger. And so when it's sold on the street, like in St. Louis, they, they call them beans. They're little uh, gelatin capsules that can be filled with fentanyl or heroin, and they sell for $5. Um, the, the problem is that no one knows how strong they are. One could be all fentanyl. One could have only a tiny bit of fentanyl. And um, the, 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 the drug is cut every step of the way from—it from, comes— fairly pure from China, but it's cut up by the cartels, the distributors, the street-level drug dealers. And so it's just making everyone rich and the, all the casualties aren't going to slow anything down. When the fentanyl arrives from China, it's usually very pure, like 90% or more. 
And the cartels cut it up. You know, they use things like baking soda or sometimes caffeine or Benadryl. And then when it arrives across the border, the the mid-level distributors cut it again. And so it's packaged in different ways for different markets. And some some markets, they have pressed pills. Some markets, like in St. Louis, they have the gelatin capsules called beans. Sometimes it's sold as as baggies. And it really can be cut. Canon is cut at every step of the ladder, which means that by the time it gets to the user, no one has any idea how potent it actually is. Users, are, when they buy it, they're completely unaware of how strong the product is. And that, at heart is the reason for the fentanyl epidemic is because they could be taking something totally benign or they could be taking something that kills them instantly and there's really no way to know. What do you think is something that's the most commonly misunderstood aspect of this nationwide fentanyl crisis? I think there's a basic dearth of information when it comes to fentanyl itself and people just aren't thinking about it They're trying to put it in different boxes. They're trying to say it's like heroin. It's like prescription pills, you know, but it's its own thing because, like I said, it's not something people want. And so when the when the market is being driven by the supply side instead of the demand side, it requires a whole new set of solutions, you know, solutions that are out there. They are being tried in other places with success, but the U.S. has yet. To, to adopt them and do what's necessary. In some cases, people actually want fentanyl and fentanyl is sold as fentanyl. But in most cases, that's not the case. People don't want fentanyl. They're looking for other drugs like heroin, cocaine, meth, or pills. And fentanyl is cut into them without them knowing. Where can we find you, Ben? Yeah, I, I'm still, as I said, talking to people around the country. Fentanyl Inc. is uh, available anywhere you buy books. And you can reach out to me on my website. It's benwestoff.com. You can just Google Ben Westoff and you'll find me. And uh, I really appreciate your having me on the show. Thanks for coming. <laughs>